wipe them out, all of them. This is the line, of course, from the Emperor in episode one of Star Wars. Uh, not the line you expect from God, though, or Jesus, right? Like, I expect that from the Emperor. He's evil. I don't expect that from God. Over the last four weeks, we've been exploring some of the controversial portraits of God in the Old Testament and talking about how these stories reveal Jesus. And today we're talking about the most difficult one, I think, to process and accept. Um, I put it last because I was like, maybe the world will end and I won't have to preach it. I won't have to deal with it, right? But the world didn't end, and now I have to preach it. Um, This is a difficult passage to stomach, so just stay with me. We're going to read through it. It's one of the most disturbing pictures of God in the Old Testament. It's a story in which he commands the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and even children. We're going to look at two passages together, both about the same people group, and then we're going to discuss how to wrestle with this, okay? So as I read this, nobody, like, freak out. We're going to talk about it. Don't go running out the back doors like, what kind of God is this? We're going to talk about it. The first passage is in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Um, And it says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey, and they attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And when the Lord your God gives you rest from your enemies around you in the land— He's the land that he's giving you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Then fast forward 200 years to 1 Samuel 15 verses 1 through 3. And Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them. That means attacked them, snuck up on them, sneak attacked them as they came out from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That's an intense passage. Everybody okay? Everybody still with me? Let's talk about this. First, who were the Amalekites? Most scholars identify them as descendants of Esau's son Amalek. This makes them cousins to the Israelites. They seem to be semi-nomadic people who roamed the lands of Canaan. Now, the land of Canaan, the promised land, was the land that Abraham had purchased for his family, which had been reclaimed by various groups after they were enslaved in Egypt. And when the Jews were returning from Egypt with plans to reconquer the cities of Canaan, they really had no issue with the semi-nomadic Amalekites. They moved around, and they didn't take over any of their land. Their cousins who traveled around really weren't a threat or an issue But the Amalekites saw the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt, and they're like, easy target. And so they waited in wait, they laid in wait for them, and they snuck up, and then they attacked the rear of the camp. Now, in ancient times, your warriors would go out front, and then your families, and then in the back would be women, small children, infants, the elderly, people with disabilities, people who moved slower because they were safer at the back. Because if an attack came, people would see it out front. They'd be able to prepare for it. So they put the weakest people in the back. But the Amalekites laid in wait, and they attacked the back. They attacked the powerless, the vulnerable, 
they attacked the people who couldn't protect themselves. And um, God tells Israel, don't forget what happened. This is a terrible thing that happened, and I don't want you to forget it. In fact, of the 613 laws that God gives Israel in the wilderness, three of them are about the Amalekites. Um, He's like, don't forget what they did. Your job is going to be to blot these people out and make them pay for what they did. Now, there were wars in the land of Canaan, and we could flip to different passages in the Old Testament where Israel fights wars against people who took their lands, the lands that their forefather Abraham had bought, and that they had figured, hey, those people are enslaved, their land's up for grabs, I'll just take it. So we could turn to lots of passages in the Old Testament about God helping them take back their land, but God isn't a God of war. Anybody play the God of War games? God of War? Yeah, in that you're in a linear level, right, usually, and you just kill everything in front of you. You just kill everybody. You kill everything. That's not what God is like. In God of War, you destroy everyone in your path. It doesn't matter. You just get into the end. You're slaughtering everybody. Some people, though, if you read the Old Testament stories about war and fighting, sided with Israel, right? God wasn't just like, kill everybody. Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho, famously becomes part of the line and lineage of Jesus. If you flip over to Matthew, where you see the lineage of Jesus and his family history, they're like, oh, by the way, Rahab, she was in this Canaanite city, but she sided with the Israelites, and she's actually part of the family of Jesus. And I love that detail, because that means no matter what your past, we all have a place in the family of Jesus. But it's clear that some of these narratives about battle, despite the fact that they can rub us the wrong way or make us feel uncomfortable, um, really usually presented people with a choice to either fight what God was doing or to join God. But we don't have that in this passage. The narrative about the Amalekites stands out because God doesn't say, hey, reclaim the lands of your ancestors that they purchased and that were stolen from you. He doesn't say take the cities. He tells them to slaughter women and children and even infants. What kind of God would say that? Right? That's like, that's sick, that's wrong. What's going on here? Well, we need to understand something critical in the story of the Bible. God made humans to be his representatives on the planet. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And when humans failed to properly represent him, he chose a remnant of humans to represent him. That's the Jewish people, Israel. And when they failed, he chose a remnant of Jews, the line of David, the tribe of Judah. And when they fell, he chose a single descendant in the line of David, the Messiah, Jesus, who did not fail. But succeeded for us. When God makes a covenant promise to a people, he binds himself and his reputation to unreliable partners. That's what happens over and over again in the Old Testament. God's like, hey, we're going to make a covenant together. We're going to make a mutual promise. And the humans always fail, and God always succeeds. But that means that sometimes he's bound to people who are unreliable, and that's what it means to love. We make promises to people who are never going to be 100% reliable. It opens us up to be hurt, and it opens us up to be committed to flawed people. Some of God's most intense, unpleasant expressions of violence are a result of preserving a faulty people that he made a promise to. Because they are flawed, they get themselves into bad situations, and because he's bound himself by promises and by love, he gets them out of it. Okay, all that to be said— Why is it such an extreme response 
here in this passage. Around 1000 AD, a uh, Jewish rabbi named Rashi. Um, by the way, his real name was Jacob. He gave himself the nickname Rashi. If you're going to give yourself a nickname, Rashi is not the nickname to give. You know, like, come up with something better. I mean, like, that sounds like a name the schoolyard bully would give you, not the name you would pick. But anyways, he wrote extensively about this because the Jewish people themselves were struggling with this passage as they look back on their history. Here's how Rashi explained it. From man unto woman, from infant unto suckling, from ox unto sheep, so that the name of Amalek would not even be mentioned with a reference to an animal by saying this animal used to belong to Amalek. He says God wanted to wipe out everything that could even be associated with them, so no one would even say, oh, that used to be an Amalekite, or that used to belong to Amalek. So maybe that's what's happening here, um, that God's goal was that the Amalekites be wiped from the very earth, that the memory of them be blotted from history, and historians have told us that they found Egyptian and Assyrian monuments that have been inscribed in stone that give records of this period, and they list different various tribes and nations and people who existed at the time. There's no mention of the Amalekites. So maybe that's what was happening. God was just blotting them out of history because of this terrible thing that they did. But the lack of archaeological evidence for the Amalekites have also led to an alternate perspective on this passage. Um, the fact that they keep coming up with the, coming up in the biblical story has led some to insist they were not really a people group, but a term that was used for a title, uh, a term that was used like a title for someone who hated God and hated God's people, the Jews. So some people are like, okay, the Amalekites were real people, and God said wipe them out. Some people are saying the Amalekites is more like a term that you use for people who hate God and are against his people. Two different uh, perspectives on how to read this passage. Um, in modern Judaism, the term Amalekite is used to represent an archetypal enemy of the Jews, such as the Nazis. They would be called Amalekites. Um, in Jewish folklore, the term Amalekite is used as a symbol for evil itself. So not for a people group, but actually to represent evil. So, Here's the question before us. Did God order a genocide? That's the question we have to wrestle with. Or is God commanding them to wipe out evil itself as his representatives in the world? This is the tension in this passage. And uh, despite Israel being told to wipe them out, they continue popping up in the story of the Bible. God keeps saying, hey, wipe them out, and then they keep showing up. Wipe them out, and they keep showing them up. That seems to imply that maybe it's not just a people group. As Jews celebrate Purim, um, their people being rescued by Queen Esther from the machinations of Haman, he is referred to as an Amalekite. He lives 500 years after the story we just read in 1 Samuel, and yet he's called an Amalekite. So there were still some Amalekites running around, or the term isn't just for a people group, but about people who put into practice plans to oppress the weak and the vulnerable, and especially God's people. Okay, so there's six possible options when it comes to this passage, and we're going to look at all six options briefly because I think this is important. Because this is in this Bible, and so we can't ignore it, and so we have to deal with it. So how do we resolve the tension in this passage with our understanding of God as loving and compassionate? First of all, it's not like you can flip open to a whole bunch of passages where God says wipe out everybody, right? 
one passage. That's what we're looking at. They're like, there's other places where he helps Israel fight. He helps them get back their land. He helps protect them against invaders. But this is the only place we see where he's like total annihilation. Okay, here's our six options. Number one, Samuel brings these words on God's behalf. Maybe he got the message wrong. I don't think that's accurate because uh, we have no evidence in the text to support that. There's no evidence of that, but that's an option. Number two, the statement to wipe out the women and children possibly was an idiom. Hebrew is a poetic language rather than a precise language. Maybe this was a statement of the completeness of the uh, destruction and not a prescription for the ruthlessness of the attack. Amalekites keep showing up after this story, and so if it was a complete destruction, somehow women and children seem to have survived. Number three, third option. Amalekites are not a people group, but are any people that have made their existence about destroying people who serve God. In this view, being an Amalekite is a chosen creed, like being a Nazi. You're not born a Nazi, that's something you choose. To kill a Nazi child would be to take it and to raise it to not be a Nazi anymore. That would kill the Nazi, kill the Amalekite, but not actually kill the person. Number four, uh, the Amalekites were cruel people who attacked women and children on the road, and by destroying their people and their culture, God was ridding the land of a violent, roving terrorist group that made all the people of the land safer. Israel, as God's chosen people, had a unique res responsibility to carry out his justice, and this was ancient times. There was no UN peacekeeping force to send to the region. There were no economic sanctions you could use against the Malachites, right? There was, if, if God was going to do something, he needed to use Israel as his sword to smite. Um, so, these are options. Which option is right? I don't know. Which answer feels most logical to you? The text is designed to make us wrestle with it, though, and the wrestling with it is by design. It's a feature, not a bug. I remember in Tennessee, we had this guy who moved from Florida up to Tennessee, and he had been involved in some gangs in Miami his whole life, and he ends up moving up to Tennessee to get away from some uh, bad decisions that he made, he ended up coming to church, puts his faith in Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus, and he starts asking all these questions. And I remember he got on the internet and he printed out all these problem texts and passages in the Bible. And he sat down with me and some of the other staff. And he said, hey, what, what do you think about these? And, uh, you know, we were working through some of them. And I remember one senior staff member said, here's my answer for you. Just don't go on those websites or worry about this stuff anymore. Just read other places in the Bible. And I'm like... That's not really giving him a satisfying answer. Like, he's looking at hard passages like this, and many times the church's response is, hey, go read an easier passage. Go read something else. Just ignore these hard passages. Um, remember the meme where the, girl is with his, uh, the guy is with his girlfriend and he looks at some other girl? Everybody remember this meme? This is many times us as modern Christians. We're like, an easy-to-understand New Testament passage. I love that. We'll just go read that. An Old Testament passage about God's wrath and anger, I just don't really get it. I'm just going to read over here and ignore, like, the Old Testament. That's not how the Bible was designed. When we come to something difficult, something hard, the authors have included it 
to make us wrestle with it, to sit and think about the fact that God remembers when those he loves have been hurt. When you've been wronged, when you've been belittled and betrayed, God remembers. When you've been violated, you don't have to take vengeance because we have a God who will avenge. We have a God of justice who remembers. We don't have to take it upon ourselves to even the score because we have a God who fights for us. It was 200 years between when the Amalekites attacked Israel and when God gives the command to have them completely wiped out. The text implies, though, that they haven't changed at all, because when the king of the Amalekites is being killed, they said, you have made many mothers weep for their dead sons, because you have killed many. And so they're still doing the same thing that they have always done. Living next door to Israel hasn't affected how they behave at all. They're still a violent people who take advantage of the weak and powerless. And for 200 years, it looked like God was doing nothing. But when it looks like everyone has forgotten how the vulnerable have been abused, when it looks like the oppressor is never going to be held responsible, know this, God doesn't forget. He didn't forget about the women and the children and the elderly and the disabled who were attacked at the rear of the Israelite camp. By people laying in wait. Something stirs in God when people oppress the weak and powerless, when people use power and money and influence to oppress the little guy. God comes and fights for you when the powerful take advantage of you. When the connected mistreat you, when the rich abuse you, something stirs in God. He wants to fight for you. Now, we only really have one story of Jesus using violence in the Bible. Um, But it seems to fit this theme. He entered the temple courts where the temple officials have set up a corrupt market to make money off the religious duties of the common people. And they set up this market in the Gentile court, which is where the Gentiles were supposed to come in and be able to worship the one true God. And, uh, but they put it there because they wanted to keep the Gentiles out. They're like, oh, we don't need them. And we'll put a, uh, we'll put a marketplace in there where we can rip people off. And so Jesus comes in and flips tables and sets animals free. And I think sometimes we forget. We think of Jesus like holding the little baby lamb, inviting the children to come unto him, which is true. But Jesus also flipped some tables when people were using religious authority to misuse and abuse people. In one of the gospel accounts, he makes a whip to drive out the salesmen and the animals alike. Yes, God is merciful and loving. He's overwhelmingly siding on mercy, but something stirs in him when those he loves, when the weak and vulnerable are attacked. And perhaps the graphic picture here is not about whether or not the Amalekites were a real people or whether or not it was a term used for people who are oppressed God's people. Perhaps the graphic command to kill everyone and everything in the Amalekite camp is more meant as a warning for us than a statement on God's character. When God moves to bring justice against the oppressor, we need to be sure that we're not in their camp because no one's left alive. If I'm honest, I've spent a lot of my time in my life and even in my ministry fighting for a seat with the powerful and the influential tables that I think Jesus probably would have flipped. Sometimes I think we're fighting to get into the Amalekite camp so that we can be the oppressor, we can be the powerful, we can be the influential. Sometimes we've sided with the oppressor and we've ignored the cries of the oppressed. We pray for God to avenge us while we fail to realize that we've made the camp of the Amalekites our home. 
I want us to think about this morning this question. How do I take advantage of the powerless? How do I wield my privilege for the good of others? And if you've had people who have wronged you and have hurt you and have taken advantage of you and have abused you and manipulated you, let go of that anger today because you have a God who does not forget. And he will hold the oppressor to justice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. It's a challenging passage today, Lord. And we're not quite sure how to, what to make of it. There's enough ambiguity here that some people are like, this was a real people group, and you wiped them out. And others people say, no, it was is a term given for a certain type of person who has set themselves against God and against his people and wants to take advantage of weak people. Regardless of which is true, we know that overwhelmingly throughout this story, you are a God of mercy and kindness and second chances. All the time when people are expecting you to come and show up with judgment, you come and show up with love and grace. And we're grateful that you did that by dying for us on the cross. But God, we can rest assured knowing that when it looks like the guilty have gotten away with everything and no one's going to hold them accountable, we know that you don't forget. God, help us to forgive.